just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to be challenged by this message that we're going to look at today from your word. We ask your spirit, guide and lead us as we, as we examine it. In your son's precious name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27, and I'm going to read a very large chunk of uh, verses because they're all pretty much the same, same thing said many times. Ye have heard it said of them of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whosoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it away from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and, that, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is profitable for you to, that one of your members should perish, and that your and not your whole body should be cast into hell. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let her give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is con divorced committed adultery. Again, you have heard it said, By them of old time you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, or for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is, foot, is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of, God, of the great king. Neither shall you swear by head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these becomes of evil. You have heard it said, that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue you in, at the lawn, take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow from you, turn not you away. If you have heard it said of... of you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the, on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them that love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even so the publicans so? Be ye perfect, therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here we see, and we're going to just say a general thing about this as we kind of examine what Jesus is saying. Jesus is raising the bar way above anything that the Old Testament has, has done so far. And we're going to look at this because Jesus is taking it from actions to the way we think and saying that if you think wrong you're you're not in the right place with him so we're going to look at some of these and just kind of see what he's saying uh, verse 27 says you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery and this is what the the ten commandments says that you shall not commit adultery sex out uh, sex uh, with somebody other than your spouse but but then he goes but I say unto you, whosoever looks at a woman with lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And this Jesus is lifting up to a new level. Okay, he's saying, you know, because what does the world even tell us today? It's okay to look. 
Uh, you hear this all the time. You know, people will say, well, it's okay to look, just don't act. Jesus is saying it's not okay to look with that type of look. All right. And we're not talking here about that first glance where you all of a sudden say, boy, that person's pretty or that person's very attractive. It's that dwelling on look. Uh, in Job 31.1, Job says, I have made a covenant with my heart not to look after a woman with, a, uh, with, a, with, with adultery. So this goes way back, all the way back to, to Job was even having that same mentality. I'm, I'm not even going to take that look. Because all adultery starts with the look and starts in the heart. Uh, you know, it starts with that intimate sharing of things with somebody, and this is usually what ends up happening, intimate sharing of facts about your family life that probably shouldn't be shared with the opposite sex. Now, well, you understand me. My wife doesn't understand me. She hasn't, she hasn't shown me this much kindness in a long time. And you start giving intimate details about your life and your feelings, and you draw an attraction to this person. And there are those who just, they're going out for adultery and they, they're purposing for it and they're looking for the prettiest person they can find or the most attractive person they can find and, that, and in their heart is adultery. But it can also start with just going beyond the boundaries that you should. Uh, and this is something that we need to be careful of. Our thoughts. Our thoughts need to be pure. We're told by the apostle that we're to treat other women in the church as sisters. And he's not just being a generic you know, sister. He's really bringing out the idea that we need to treat them as if we were dealing with our own sister, with purity in our relationship, until such time as you decide that you're going to court the person and, and change the relationship to a pursuing of marriage. And that would be a different world at that point, but until that point, you treat them as sisters. You're, you're, you're thinking of them with the right thoughts. Now, having said that, our world is getting very perverse because of incest and everything else is becoming very prevalent out there in the world. So this starts to be broken down, and this is another place where Satan is trying to destroy the pictures that God has put in. God has said, you know, the family is important. So what does Satan try to do? He's trying to destroy families. We see it on TV. We see it in the, in the relationships as people break up families. Uh, divorce is becoming prevalent. Why? Because Satan knows that the divorce is the picture, the marriage is the picture of Jesus and his bride. So if he can destroy that picture, people have a broken relationship. He's trying to destroy the relationship of the picture of a father because God is our father. And I know many people that you know, when you mention that God is the Father, they have a hard time picturing something good from that because they've been abused by their father over the years, either physically or, and or even sexually. And if, when that has happened in their life or they've had an, a father that abandoned their family, okay? Lots of negative things have happened with this. And because that picture has been so destroyed and warped, when God is described as a father to these people, you know, they're thinking, yeah, right, I don't need a father. I know what a father's like. And even though they know in one side of their head that a father's not supposed to be like that, what ends up happening is the reality of what they've experienced interferes. And Satan is trying to destroy the reality. 
He's destroying the picture you know, by what we see on our movies and our, in our books and our TV shows. It's very hard to find a picture of a good father in any show or movie you see. Very hard to find a good intact family in, in most movies and, and shows that we watch. Most fam families on the, that we see or read about are dysfunctional in one way or another. The father's gone, the father's an idiot, the mother's an idiot, you know, uh, they're always fighting. And what they're telling us is this is, we're just reflecting, you know, we're just reflecting the, what's the reality of what's going on. Well, no, they're doing more than just reflecting. They are really warping it. And in some cases, they are reflecting in their mindset because most of the people in that business have problems. It was bad in the 70s or 80s with all the shows that you mentioned. It's worse now because now the mothers aren't even worth anything. It's the, family, the kids that are running, running the families. But it, go, it really does go back, way back into even the 40s and 50s. Yes, you had a few good shows, but even if you watch the shows like Father Knows Best, he bumbled and stumbled his way through. He usually got to the right answer, but they basically showed a bumbling father who managed to get to the right good. So it was lifted up as, oh, okay, you know, this is okay. But you, you see this over and over in these shows. They were laying the groundwork even, even back then to then go to the next generation where the father's just a total boob that has nothing to do with it, to the next generation that we're in now where mother and father are total idiots and it's the kids trying to hold the family together. This is what Satan's trying to do. He's destroying the picture of what God says is good. We've had generation after generation being raised on these shows having bad thoughts planted in their head without knowing that they've been planted there and then wondering why they have trouble with family. Add to that the, the experts telling you how to be family, how to run your families who can't run their own families uh, you've got people that are uh, doing counseling for marriage counseling who are on their second and third, fourth, fifth, sixth marriage, and they're trying to tell others how to make their marriage work. But we need to keep an eye, eye on God has a way of doing it. And God says, right here when Jesus says, start with the very thought. Quit even entertaining the thought of adultery or fornication. Because if we stop the thought, and this is why Jesus is moving beyond just the actions. When the Ten Commandments were given, we look at some of those commandments as being pretty harsh. But in their day, they were quite a distinct difference between the rest of the world. Jesus raised the standard even higher. And, well, we get down to it. It mentioned an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And most people in our day and age say, boy, how, how awful that was. But you've got to think, back, in, back when, Jesus, when God gave them the commandment of an eye for an eye, if somebody offended you, you just rode in with all your people and took everything away from them and killed their whole family just because they offended you. When God gave them the commandment, an eye for an eye, he's, he's very much limiting. You couldn't just ride in and, and punish the whole family because their son did something that hurt you. You could hurt the son with an equal amount of pain that he did to you, but you couldn't take everything away from his family because you were strong enough to just write in and take everything. Jesus is raising the standard even higher here. He's saying, I want your thoughts to be pure and right. Don't even give way to, your, to, your, to these wrong thoughts. 
And the world, you, you hear it all the time and you've heard it, you even hear it on TV. You know, it's okay to look, just don't act. You know, and people have said that all the time. I remember hearing that a lot when I was young. Newly married people go, just, it's okay to look. It's, you know, you're not, just don't act on it. No, because you're setting yourself up for the wrong thoughts. You're actually committing the sin in your mind. But beyond that, once it starts getting planted in your mind, eventually you're probably going to act upon what you think about. Mostly. Mostly. Which is also why he's saying don't entertain with your, with, your, with your sight. Which is why pornography affects men more than it does women, or visual pornography, because men are attracted more likely to the visual, which is why they will be attracted to the women who wear practically nothing and they will be paying attention to them, because we are a visual you know, hunter-type activity. Women are more, are more susceptible to the emotional level of, of, a, of a pornography. The, the, the words and the feelings and everything. Most romance novels that they read are pure pornography if you get into them. But it's a different type of pornography that men don't really get into. The descriptions and all that stuff that they, that they fall into. But uh, here Jesus is saying, don't even enter into that thought. And then he goes, <clears throat> if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, in one sense, he is being literal to pluck out your eye if, you, if it offends you. But what he's really saying is, get rid of the problem. You know, we talked a little bit about pornography. If you have a problem with pornography, quit looking at the magazines, quit looking at the movies, quit watching the shows that that give you problems. <clears throat> you may have to get rid of a computer. Um, in uh, Fireproof, the movie, you know, he, he represented a person who was having problems with pornography, and the way he finally got rid of it was he destroyed his computer because he knew that he could not keep away from the site. So now, there are other ways you could do that. Rather than getting rid of your computer, you could put the, the, the programs on that will allow a friend to be able to look at whatever you've been watching on your computer. Uh, so there's other ways to do that. But in reality, it's we do what it takes to stay pure. What is the word for what we're talking about? Just um, if you're right, I gouge it out. It's literally, it's literal. It's literal. If your right eye causes you to st stumble, cast it out. But I think it's also a figurative a figure of yeah, speech. That's what I'm looking but the word, but the statement is the statement is a literal statement. But he, and this is what I'm saying. If you cannot keep away the right eye, when God, anytime the scripture uses right, it is the side of approval. Okay, and we still have that statement. This is my right hand. Man, okay, this is the one I approve. This one, when this person speaks, they're speaking for me. And owner, you know, the owner says, This is my right hand person. I trust this person implicitly. But it would be figurative it is kind of figurative. He's not saying, Go cut your hand off, go, go gouge your it's eyes out. It basically is a metaphor, but it is still the idea of. And this is what I'm saying, in one sense, it's kind of literal. If there's no other way that you can get out of not viewing this stuff, but to, you know, you're so evil that you cannot, 
He's literally saying, get rid of it. But he's also saying, get rid of whatever causes it, no matter how precious it is. Well, I think it's important, you know, when you're, uh, when you're witnessing to somebody, oftentimes they'll come back and say, well, it's just a story. You've got to explain to them what a parable is. And yeah. It's figurative or metaphor. Uh, right. So that's why I was asking. And it is kind of a metaphor because he's saying, keep your mind pure. And this is why I went back to Job. Job says, I have made a covenant with my heart not to look upon a woman with lust. He had already decided, I'm not going to go there. That same statement, I'm not going to look. And if you don't look and with that attitude, then you'll never act on it because you're not. Then he, then he goes, he goes, if your right hand offends you, cut it off, for it is more profitable to, to go with one of your, without your members. So again, he's saying, First, it's your thought life, and then it's your actions, okay? And again, he's saying right hand, the side of approval. If you never think about it, you will never act. If you're thinking about it, you shouldn't act, but if you do act, he's saying get over it and get rid of whatever's causing the problem, which is why I use the movie Fireproof. He got rid of his computer because it was his big, his big problem, and he figured he couldn't get by without it, but it was also good for the movie to make that big, big jump. But again, we've talked about this. How many times does somebody give up some sin in their life and then they leave a provision? I'm going to quit drinking, but I'm going to keep this bottle of whatever their favorite drink is in the back of the cabinet just in case I need it. If you do that, you're going to need it. I'm going to give up pornography, but I'm going to keep all the passwords to all the sites I go to on the, on the website, even though I'm going to wipe out all the, the history and all those, but I'm going to keep all the passwords I've heard a lot just of in case. But the whole point on this is too many times we make a provision for backsliding into whatever it is we're trying to get out of. And this is what he's saying. Get rid of it, whatever it costs, get rid of that, what's causing that sin. And in this case, he starts out with thoughts. Thoughts are and what we dwell on will lead us into a different part of our life. And just real quick, I want to go to Psalm, Psalm 1, because Psalm 1 is a great picture of that. Verse 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I'm going to stop right there, because that's the part I want to... This is oftentimes called the anatomy of a sin. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Am I listening to ungodly people? Am I filling my mind with ungodly thoughts? It starts with just listening and putting things, wrong things in my, in my, into my brain. Then it goes in, nor stands in the way of sinners. The next step is I'm not just listening to them. I'm actually hanging out with them. Not necessarily practicing what they're doing, but I'm right there as they do it. And then the last part is sits. I am dwelling, I am abiding with that sin. And at that point, you're no longer even looking at it as sin because you are participating, you know, at least tacitly participating because you're, you're abiding with them. Okay? And there's two on there that says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. How do we keep from these mental sins that Jesus is talking about? We take delight in his law and we meditate on it. Okay, we think about it. We dwell upon it. 
we masticate on it. We, we chew it up and we go, okay, God, what exactly does this mean? Which is why I am a big proponent of we read our Bible in the morning and then we think all day long about what it is that I've read. Not every moment of every day, but you know, several times we start thinking. And what I have noticed in my lifetime is whatever I read in the morning usually is just what I need that day. Things will come up that will match what God told me to do. Now, the world would say that's coincidence. I say that it's God orchestrating it. But we meditate on his word. And then it says in verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the water. We meditate on God's thoughts. We think about his thoughts. And he makes us stand firm for him. We want to be, how do we work on getting rid of these bad thoughts? We, We replace them. Our thoughts have to be replaced. And I've said this over and over. I've been walking with God for a long time. He's replaced a lot of my thoughts. I tend to think more like God does on a lot of issues. And I've shared with everybody many times, I don't find jokes about marriage very funny. I don't find shows that make fun of marriage funny. Now, I understand why the world thinks they're funny. Don't get me wrong. I don't, it's not that I don't understand what the world sees humorous about it. It's just, I don't find them humorous because they're against God. A lot of preachers find, use those to like break an eye. I've seen it many times from pastors that use that kind of stuff. And it irritates me when a pastor will make fun of that. Now, I'll make fun of Christians, you know, because I know that we are a very strange brood. But I don't want to make fun of marriage because marriage is under such an attack. I don't want to make fun of it. I don't want to participate in making people even think that it's funny. Because I don't see any funniness in the attack on on marriage. I see a great seriousness on the attack on marriage. And there's other little things that are, you know, but marriage is the one that really gets me because, you know, like you say, pastors even will make fun of it, you know, at times to try to break, you know, break a message, you know, break into a message. And I just don't find, to me, it's too serious. The attack on it has been too serious and it's just too serious an issue to find it any fun in it. But it all comes down to how do we think? Am I really thinking with God on a topic? If I'm thinking with God on a topic and somebody is destroying, you know, making fun of something God says is serious, we shouldn't find any fun. You know, it shouldn't be funny. We shouldn't want to break those things. And for each person, that's going to be slightly different on what God is encouraging them to be serious on. Our way of thinking must be replaced with God's way of thinking. It goes also back into... Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live according to the faith of Jesus Christ. Our way of thinking by this world needs to be crucified. And then it needs to be replaced. Things do not exist in a vacuum, and this is said mostly of power. There is never a vacuum in power. When, when something happens to lose somebody in power, something must take its place. When a civilization, a great civilization power breaks up and falls apart. There's a period of chaos while all the different nations are trying to find out who's going to be number one. And sometimes that leads to big wars, sometimes it doesn't. If they take down a gangland kingpin, the city that they take him down in is going to have chaos for a while while all the different groups try to say who's, who's, who's going to be the one to replace that power. It's, and we see this over and over. In history, we see it when a king dies, if they didn't make very strong 
plans for who's going to succeed them, they're sometimes with civil war in their country by their own kids trying to take over the, the monarchy. Power, because power is related to the human nature, and human nature will make it bad. We're to crucify our flesh, which is our sin nature, but, but the biggest thing is we replace it with Christ and his way of thinking. And this is important. If we don't replace it with his way of thinking, the flesh will just rear up again and give us the wrong thinking. When we start thinking with God and like God, we start making better decisions. We start making things that are godly. The world's going to make fun of us. Maybe even some Christians will make fun of you. We need to be thinking like God and listening to those who are righteous because it is important to think like him. And the only way we can think like him is be in his word and, and, and be changed. And this is where we're told in the Old Testament, he changes us line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. God slowly changes the way we think. And it is slow, and it's on purpose to be slow. Because, you know, we make most of our decisions without thought. This is very important for us to understand. Most of our decisions are done without really thinking about what to do. And this is why we know who people are by what they do. Because they're not thinking about, how can I fool everybody? And so God changes us overnight, because if he totally changed us instantly and he demolished all of our bad thoughts, we wouldn't be able to think and do anything. So he slowly changes us. He slowly knocks out the world's way of thinking and replaces it with his thoughts. And over time, as we start meditating on his word, over time, as we start learning his word, you, you will start realizing, I'm doing more things the way God wants me to because he's changing who I am. And if you look back over your life as you walk with God, I hope you see that. It's not because I'm making huge changes and I'm purposing and I'm fighting and I'm struggling. God changes who I am and I start making those decisions that are more like him. I love people more and I react to people more with love and forgiveness because of who God is changing me to be. And it just becomes who you are. And not going to be perfect, but you will make better decisions because you're being changed into being like him. You're dwelling on his word. You're dwelling on, on his way of thinking. And you're praying and saying, God, I ask you to change me. And God changes you. And it's going to change you even if you ask him to. It just will take longer if you don't ask him to. But we, we look at this. We get into his word. God, how do you want me to act? How do I act? And by getting into his word, he's going to chip away at all these things and change who you are. And, he's going to, and it, because he indwells us, he's going to come out of us. And this is very important that we understand. The word tells us that we become like what we worship. And this is very important for us to understand. If we truly are worshiping God, we will become like him. When people worship an idol, they become like the idol that they're worshiping. If they worship the goddess of, of sex, they became very licentious and sexually oriented in their lifestyle because that's what they were worshiping. If they're worshiping after power, you will find very driven people trying to reach the top of their world because power is what's important to them. Got to be at the top of the company. Got to be in charge of everything. And they're worshiping the God of power. In the Old Testament, it would have been Moloch. It's easy to think that uh, one of these changes is maybe due to uh, getting older and wiser 
Mm -hmm. And hopefully as we get older and wise, truly older and wiser, it's because of God in us. But I've seen many older and older and quote unwiser people that are just better at hiding their sin from the rest of the world than they are because they're not godly. And they're just getting better at what they know how to do. But if you look at them, you get to know them, they're chasing whatever idol they have in their heart. And they're good at whatever idol they have in their heart. And this is why it's important. We worship God. We meditate on God and let him change our thoughts. Let him change who we are. And then people start noticing those changes. And then they start wanting to know why. And it's, it's a slow process for most people. And I've, said, I've seen people who get cha- you know, saved and supernaturally get changed you know, almost overnight. They get a lot of their life changed. The only problem with that fast of change is they have a little bit of impatience when pe- most, with the most of the Christian world that takes a long time to change. And, but God will change us slowly, little bit by little bit. And some of it is how much are we willing to let him change us and how quickly it is. I have been very stubborn in most of my life and it's taken me a long time to be changed in many areas of my life. It's getting better. I'm, I'm actually getting better and learning faster than I used to. But I used to be very stubborn. God had to beat me over the head with a two by four for a long time to get my attention. And even then I was very stubborn most of the time. And, you know, and eventually I would <laughs> come around. But, you know, I know that I'm not the only one like that. I'm glad to hear that because it seems like for a long, long time, every uh, preacher or everyone I've heard of was talking about that, uh, that moment when the spirit went off and the fireworks went off and they had some vision or something and then just unbelievable and then they came to the Lord. Uh, I would rather believe that it was a slow process like you and me, a growing process. Most of the people I have met in my lifetime, it's been a slow. Now, I do know people that have had a supernatural, you know, their entire life was turned upside down and total changes. I've also known a lot of those people to be very impatient with those like myself who've grown slowly. We all have to grow in God and have our minds changed. And when Jacob wrestled with the angel, that was a big deal for him because that was a real change in his life spiritually. And that's why his name was also changed at that point in time because he was Jacob, heel grabber, conniver, and that's who he was. And then after that, he became Israel, one who contends with God or prevails with God. And it was, he was changed at that point. He was more of a spiritual individual and sought after God. So that was a big change in his life. And he started thinking differently. It wasn't how am I taking advantage of people, but how can I be like my God? And this is what all of us have to hit this point. Now, I fully believe that there's something in your life when you get saved that has changed. Okay, there needs to be something that shows that you are a new creation. And it could be as simple of having a love for the word of God, having a love for the God's people, losing a particular sin quickly out of your lifestyle. There needs to be some aspect that says, yes, I am a new creation. But there should then be that growth process from that point on. When I got saved, God took a temper away from me. Now, most everything else has been a long, slow process. And, but he also gave me one really great thing is I was always in love with going to church, but it gave me a love for God's word. 
He gave me a love for his word at the same time he took my you know, temper away from me. And I have been studying God's word since you know, 10, 11 years old. Really intense, you know, as a young child, I really studied more than most adults study. This is what God gave me. Those he took one away and gave me a real strong gift. Now he's developed and slowly worked other things into my life. And it's taken a long time for some of them. It gives me a love, though, for others that are slowly being developed because it's given me, God had patience with me. I want to show them patience. And I'm not a very patient person in, in nature because I am, a driven, I am a driven person. I like to see results. So for me to have patience for others is a great <laughs> gift as well. But God has used it because he says, look, it's taken you this long. Be patient with others that are coming, that are coming along. And so... We need to have this attitude of changing the way we think. And that was the first place that Jesus started with, as our thought life. And then he says, if your, if your actions, your right hand offends you, then get rid of those areas. And that can be, again, handling the books, the movies, when we talked about pornography, whatever it might be. What, what do I do? Starts with thinking. If I, don't think correct, if I don't think about it, I won't do. That's the first part, and that's what we... The, fly, the little thing I have up on the power, PowerPoint. How do you forgive somebody? The very first part is quit thinking about it. There is, I mean, well, there is for women too. There's, loneliness is a driving factor for some of these things. And if that's the case, we either need to draw closer to God or ask him to give us a partner that will be the one that can fulfill us. He will give us the partner, and Paul said that it's good for a man not to be married if they've got that gift. But if you're going to burn for, with lust, he says, go get married. Uh, and because not everybody is destined to be single. Uh, because there is the desires and the, and the heart. If all you want to do is be married, you need to get married, and then usually you wish you were single, but that's beside the point. You've at least got the person that you can have the relationship with to, to be hopefully outside of that loneliness. Uh, if, if God is not enough, and I can understand him not being enough because he's spiritual. But once you get married, you have the flip side of it is that you're not free to do whatever you want anymore because you've got to consider the partner and your family. And that has been in part of my life. I've had to not do some of the things that I wanted to do because I have a wife that has to be taken care of. Otherwise, I'd have done a whole different, different way of going in my life. But is it bad? Not, no. You know, it, is what it, it is what it is. Neither one is bad. If, uh, if you're not married and you can just pick up and go and do whatever God wants you to do without even having to think about anybody else, and that's good. Uh, now, having been married, my wife has been a good balance for me at times. And she says, well, let's think about this or let's, uh, let's consider something else. And my wife is a good balance for me because she is very outgoing and friendly and, and was good for me when I visited people. She would get them talking and then I would help with their problems and stuff. So we made a good team going out and to see people. But, you know, this whole thing of how are we thinking, how are we acting? has to be driven by our thought life. And as I was saying, you know, forgiveness. How do we forgive somebody? The very first step is quit thinking about it. 
Because if you quit thinking about it, you can forget it, quote unquote. You know, people will say, and the, you know, the science says, we never truly forget anything, but the less we dwell on something, the more we forget it. You know, most people can't remember what they ate 10 days ago. Why? Because you don't think about it. <laughs> you know, you know, did I eat? I don't remember even, even you know, if, what you don't think about is for all practical purposes forgotten. Can you dredge it up? Can somebody find it in your brain? Yes, for supposedly everything that we've ever seen, heard, or, or smelled, or anything is in our brain. But again, if you don't think about it, you really don't remember it. And if you don't think about it, you won't act on it. And if you don't act, and if you're not thinking about it, you won't speak about it. And those are the steps of forgiveness. Don't think about it, don't dwell about it, don't say bad things about them, and don't mistreat them. But again, it all starts with that very first one. If you quit thinking about it, you're not going to want the revenge. <laughs> you're not going to talk to others about it. Our thoughts are the prime driver of who we are. Where our, what, what the treasure of our heart is, out of the treasure of our heart, we speak. If I have bitterness in my heart, I'm going to speak bitterness. If I have love in my heart, I'm going to speak love. If I have forgiveness in my heart, I'm going to speak forgiveness. If I have anger in my heart, I'm going to be an angry person and speak with angry words. Our thought life drives who we are and how we behave, which is why when we spend time with people, we get to know what's important to them by what they speak. Because what do they speak? They speak out of what is in their heart. And we get to know where they're at. Are they generally kind? Are they generally loving? Are they gen Will they be perfect in those areas? No. <laughs> but you get to talk to people. And I share with people, when I talk to a Christian, I love being around Christians because if, God, if they truly love God, they're going to speak about him at some point. What really drives me crazy is somebody who tells me they're a Christian, but they don't talk about God at all. You know, it's one thing, you know, I'm not saying talk about God 24-7, 365 days, but if you talk with somebody over a period of time and they're not talking about God ever, how important is he to them? You know, the people at the prison, even though I'm not a chaplain, they know, they know that I'm a Christian because I talk about God some frequently. I, I talk about how God is good and how he's blessing. You know, very little simple statements, smiling, singing. They kind of know who's behind them when they hear this cheerful little humming or whatever going on, and they go, no, it's, it's, it's Wells. <laughs> but, and I don't want to say we're going to be happy all the time, but again, if God's in our heart, there should be a joy. There should be a joy. I tell people, I am not going to let consequences dictate my day. I am going to have a good day, period. God is in control. Nothing's happening to me that is not in his control. I am going to have a good day. I don't care if everything's going wrong. I'm going to have a good day because God is in control. And I want to focus on him. God, I don't know why I'm having such a bad day, but you've got a reason. Let's go have some fun and not let it get, get under your skin. And that doesn't mean I do it 100% all the time, but every once in a while the, the circumstances will get to me. But for the most part, I'm going to have a good day because I've determined that God's in control and I'm going to have one. Let's see, verse 31. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry 
her that is divorced commits adultery. This was a big issue in Jesus' day. There were two big schools of thought. One said basically God's word. You couldn't, you, the only reason for a divorce was for adultery. The other school of thought said if she just didn't make you happy, you could divorce her. And Jesus is saying, no, the only way you can divorce somebody is, the only grounds would be for divorce, uh, would be for adultery or fornication, or unchastity is actually what the Greek word, you know, which means sex. So Jesus is, is building up this case. What does the world say and our world today says? You know, you're just not happy with her, get rid of her. And what has that done? It's driven divorce up to about 50% or higher right now. In this case, it's talking about that woman who's been put away illegitimately. Because you've got to take it in context. Who's he talking about? The divorce who's been put away other than for adultery. But he said, basically, if you don't have the grounds to divorce the person, technically, as far as God's concerned, you're not divorced. This is something that's important to understand. In our world, we have everybody that's getting divorced for the wrong reasons. This whole idea of irreconcilable differences. Well, if you've got two people together in their life together, you're going to have irreconcilable differences. It's just two people will have problems, period. The, the important part is to work beyond them. You know, to work beyond them and say, I want to learn to love this person the way God loves. And this is where he gets down to at the very end of the section. Learn to love. Be separate. Be different. So... He's saying very clearly, when you've bound yourselves together, don't unjoin. We used to have in the marriage bounds, what God has joined together, let no man <laughs> pull asunder, which comes from the scripture. And this is literally true. When somebody gets married, they are glued together. And that's what it, it talks about in, in Genesis. When they are to cleave together, it means literally to be glued together. And anybody who's ever glued things together with good glue, not the cheap stuff that we have nowadays, but with good glue, if you take a good wood glue and put two pieces of board together and then try to separate them, the glue does not break. The wood around the glue breaks. And this is literally what happens when, when people get divorced, even for the proper grounds of adultery. Their lives and their, at their soul level are ripped and it is tattered. If you don't believe it, think of anybody you know who's ever been divorced. They have a very ragged, raw edge toward, that, toward the, the ex-spouse. And if they're thrown together because of kids, it's even worse. It's bad enough if they can totally separate and not have to deal with each other. But they still have a ragged, torn soul. And that, will, and that torn soul will affect the next person they marry and the next person they marry. Because most people who get married a second and third time have a higher chance of divorce than the first marriage. Very scary out there. But they have a ragged, torn soul when they get divorced. Even for right reasons. And as I said, bring kids into this and make them have to deal with each other all the time. And you definitely see that ragged, raggedness to it. And I've seen it over and over in people that I've talked to and tried to counsel because they're so... There's a bitterness. Now, that bitterness will scar over a little bit, given enough time, but there's still a bitter edge. In my family, there's people, there's people who've been divorced 30 years, 40 years, and they're still having problems with the, the ex. 
we have this problem that we see in there because when two divorced people, even when they marry somebody else, especially if they're both divorced, they're bringing in a lot of baggage and scars in their soul. And the problem is it's at the soul level. Okay, and the same thing we've talked about. When somebody is criticized and put down, their soul gets hurt. And the soul being hurt is a lot more severe than a physical pain. Our physical pains will, will heal and go away. But I know many people who were told by their parents, you'll never amount to nothing. And they might be the, the top of their company. And they go one extreme or the other. They, they're, they're so low esteem that they never go anywhere or they really work really hard and they make it to the top of the company but they're still not satisfied because in the back of their mind is ringing you'll never amount to anything and no matter how high up they go they don't feel like so they've measured up it drives it drives one way or the other even you know and there are the exceptions but you know for the most part it's driven to to just give up and just be the bottom bottom of the pool or really be driven and, and but never satisfied verse 33 Again, you have heard it said of them of old, you shall not swear by yourself, but you shall forswear yourself, but shall perform unto the Lord your oath. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay, Whatsoever is more than this is of evil. And this is what God is saying. Your reputation is to be of person is of your word. Because we, we, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of people would, you know, I swear to God, <laughs> I'm telling the truth. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles that, you know, telling the truth. In Jesus' day, people would swear by Jerusalem or by the temple. Or, and basically what it's saying is, well, Really, what you're saying is, I'm so untrustworthy, I've got to give you some, power, you know, some great power to say that I'm going to keep my word. And that is not a godly way of being. We need to be people that when we say yes, we mean yes. If we say no, we mean no. And the people know that we are people of integrity in what we say and do. And a little more of doing as well as, as just speaking here. But he says, let your communication, let your speech be yes, yes, or no, no. And he goes, if you're saying anything more than this, evil is being brought in. If I have to explain everything I'm doing and saying, then there's a problem that people may seem to maybe not believe that I'm telling the truth. There, there was an old thing that we, you know, that we, that you were, used to be a person of your word, where you you kept your promises even to your own hurt. And this has been something that's gone out the window. And I've tried very hard that if I tell somebody I'm going to do it, even if I have to miss something that I really want to do that came up afterwards, I'm going to keep my promise to somebody because I want to be somebody that, that can be looked at and saying, this person is integrity. This person is honest. If they tell you they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Now, does that mean we can always do it? You know, occasionally my cars have broken down or whatever, and I just could not do it. But everything about it, everything about it was that I wanted to do it. And this has happened at times when I've had to say, no, I can't do this because I've already committed to do something that maybe I didn't even want to do, but I committed to do it because I felt God wanted me to. And then, and what is happening? Satan usually is the instigator of giving us some other option. 
oh, you really want to do this. You know, you can do this rather than honor that, honor your promise, honor, honor your commitment. Let's see. Let's see if we can finish this up. I know it, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go a few minutes beyond. Um, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say that you resist not evil. Whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him your other also. If any man will sue you in law and take away your cloak, give him your, uh, your coat, give him your cloak. Whosoever compel you to go one mile, go with him too. So Jesus is taking again this, this level up. Okay, He says, we have taught, and this has been true, they've been taught an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And again, I explained that earlier. Even when that, as, as harsh as that seems to us, it was a real big issue when it was first given. Well, what do you mean I can only do what they do to me? I can't, I can't go in and take every, you know, whatever I can get from them. And God say, nope, you can, they hurt your arm, you can break their arm. They take your tooth, you can knock out their tooth. You know, you, you know, stripe for stripe, tooth for tooth, wound for wound is really what the... Yeah, it's scriptural. It's scriptural. If they take your eye, you can take their eye. And it was the way they were to do it. And he said, don't, don't even feel sorry for them when you did this. But again, it was a limit on what they could do that was very severe in their day. You know, the people around them looked like, you guys are really strange. You know, you, you're, you got a broken arm, so you, all you will do is break his arm. Uh, what kind of logic is this? And in our day, in our mentality, it's like, that's, that's awful. How could you do that? But again, in their day, it was quite a restriction. Okay, because you could just write in, take everything. Jesus now takes it to another extreme, and we as Christians have this, this thought pattern, and our country has this thought pattern because it is a Christian country in general. In most of the world, this is a very strange idea of being, even an eye for an eye is still a strange idea in much of the world. And loving your enemy is a really crazy idea in most of the world. We in America have this mentality that is, is more Christian, and most of Europe has had and, and but is losing this mentality and jesus said resist not evil god is our defense and we've talked about this many times god is our defender if somebody's going to be evil then god will deal with it he says turn the other cheek now the joke of course goes well i turned the other cheek but now watch out if you smack you know smack this one that's not what he's saying <laughs> okay he's not saying you've run out of cheeks he's not saying that you know it's that same idea of how many times should i forgive my you know, forgive my brother, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, he said 70 times 70, and he didn't mean 490 times. He meant just keep forgiving them. <coughs> and he says, if any man will sue you because you have, they have a complaint against you and win it, he says, give them more. And then he goes, this idea of whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Now, in this day and age that Jesus is talking, a Roman soldier could come up to you as a citizen and make you carry his bags for one mile. And what most people would do is they would stumble and drag and not treat their stuff good, and then at the end of that mile, they would just dump it. Uh, very unceremoniously, they would just, I'm done, I walked, I walked my mile, and I'm gone. And they couldn't really do anything about it. And as Jesus is saying, go beyond the standard. And this is something that we need to understand. God wants us to be different from the world. That's what all of this section is all about.
have the right thought patterns, have the right activity toward our spouses. Even when the world is saying, just divorce them, we keep, we keep an honorable relationship with them. When somebody has a problem with us, we still love them and we, and we care for them and we bless them, as we're going to see later on here. We give them great blessing. It says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the world's way of doing it, isn't it? You know, and he's not just talking about neighbor here, but those who are close to you. You're going to love those who are close to you because your neighbor in that day and age was usually your family. All right? You didn't move very far away from your family. You, you lived on the same property. You may have another, you might even just have a room off the side of the house. So your neighbors were your family. So you says, love your family and hate your enemy. This, but he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Now that's hard to do. That is very hard to do. This is where God is raising the standard to an extreme. Love those enemies. Bless them that curse you. And bless here literally is to give them, uh, give them great blessing, to encourage them. And curse is literally those who... Uh, what was the sentence I wanted to put here? Uh, uh, it has a higher standard, imprecate evil upon you, or called evil upon you. Most of us have had people that have called evil upon us in words and deeds. And God says, bless them. Bless them. Not an easy, the standard Jesus is giving us from a fleshly point of view is impossible. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's yeah. a different, that's a whole different picture yeah, anyway. Talking about, we're still talking about you know, the blessing, blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking about blessing. It's like yeah. Am I right in that? It will, when we do these things to our, to our enemies, it does irritate them because that's not what they expect. It drives them nuts. It drives them nuts because it's not, it's not what is done. We'll, we'll cover that later. It's, I know what you're going to go. We'll cover that later. Uh, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, this should be the easiest of these things, to pray for them. And it's not easy, but it's the easiest of these statements. Yeah, because you don't have to do it in their presence. They don't even have to know that you're praying for them. But to bless them, to be kind to them when they are being totally evil. It is very hard, but you know, if we can do this, show them the love of God through this, it makes an impression. In the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, uh, Nikki Cruz was the, the criminal, and I think it was Robertson. Robertson's not the right name. Uh, anyway, the, the pastor just kept showing him love, kept showing him love. No matter how bad he treated him, he showed him love. And well, the thing that really touched his life was when he was holding a crusade and he asked Nikki Cruz to collect the offering and his gang to collect the offering. And of course, being the thugs, they got everybody to give really well. <laughs> and they got back to the end, they got back to the back of the auditorium where it was. And Nikki and his guys were all set to take off with the offering. 
the God touched him and said, nobody's ever trusted me. And that really touched Nikki's heart and led him to get saved. Dave Wilkerson. Dave Wilkerson, yes, that's the right name. But that one act of trust, I'm sure Dave Wilkerson probably thought for sure that Nikki and his gang were going to walk right out with the offering. He wasn't no fool, but God had moved on his heart to let him do this, and that was what changed his heart. We never know how being kind to these people. Now, they're going to think we're fools. They're going to think that we're idiots. But we're not acting toward them the way most people do, and that will really change their life. One of the instructors at the prison was telling me that she wants to give the inmates as much praise as she can because most of them have never heard any praise. That you're a good student, that you're thinking, you know, you didn't give the right answer, but at least you're thinking. You, you've come up with a, you know, she gives a lot of praise to these inmates because she knows that they have not heard it, which is basically following this, this mentality. Do they deserve it? Not always. <laughs> maybe not, maybe, maybe frequently don't. But they're hearing praise, they're hearing kindness. They're hearing, and the world hears this kindness, and they think we're nuts, they think we're dumb, we think, they think we're imbeciles, they think that we're, we are somebody that can be taken advantage of, but it also touches their heart, especially if it's real. It can't be fake. It has to be real. I care enough about you, and I'm going to trust that God is going to work on your heart. I'm going to show you love. I'm going to show you kindness. If it's fake and not real, it won't mean anything. But when it's real... It'll touch hearts and change who they are. And the reason by, in verse 45, is the last one we're going to go. The reason we do all this is that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his sun to shine on the, on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why do we do all these really, really strange things that God tells us to do? Because we're his children. He's making us like him. And we are the representative of God to people. And by me being showing people God, they get to see God. Not just hear about him, not just try to have some concept of him, but we, even though we're not God, we do things that get, so that they can see God's hand in reality. They see God's love in reality. They, they see God's forgiveness in reality. It goes against our human nature, which is why we have to have our human nature crucified. It goes against everything we want to do, and that is what impresses people, because they go, oh, wow, this is not the way most people act. This is not the way even my friends act. Think about this. Your friends in the world do not act this way even. Now, they're, they're more likely to be kind to you and forgiving, but, but even that, in most relationships in the world, there's this, I'm in this for what I can get, not necessarily what I will give. And God's saying we're in the relationship for what I can give because God gives. And if we learn to give, the good news is we also get because people will respond to the way we act. But that's not the reason for what we do. <coughs> we're not trying to manipulate them by Okay, I'm going to love you so that you'll love me. No, I'm going to love you because God said I'm to love you. The good result is you will probably love me back. But that is not why I'm doing it. I'm not trying to manipulate you. 
There's sociological, uh, sociology and psychology both talk about do good things so people will do good things back to you. The law of reciprocation. And it is generally true. You do good things to people and you generally get good things back. But that's not why, as a Christian, we do these things. I'm not doing things to try to manipulate somebody into doing good back and to love back. I'm doing it because God says to do it. We love God because he first loved us, according to 1 John. People will love God because we show them God's love. And it's to draw them to God, not to draw them to us. And it is hard. It's one of those spiritual, this, this whole section is a spiritual discipline that takes time and effort from God in our life. We can't do these things on our own. We really can't, not, not in truth. Being kind to our enemies in our own flesh will not happen. Because my flesh is going to say, I don't even want to do this. You don't deserve kindness or love at all. And we know that that's true. That's how the flesh thinks. We let God crucify the flesh and we step forward and we go forward and, and do what is good, what God wants us to do. And then he uses it. And the rewards in our, that we're getting will be heavenly rewards. And that's, the, that's where we're really looking at is we want not looking for the rewards on this world, but we're looking for the rewards that we put in heaven for doing what God wants us to do with others. So the challenge for us is ask God to help us get this love and this kind of care for one another, which means he's going to crucify our flesh and he's going to try to change us. And having taught this, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to practice <laughs> these things in our life. I, I had to have God teach me to love people. When I graduated from Bible school, I was not ready to be a pastor because I didn't love people. And I'll be flat out, I did not love people. I didn't even like people when I first graduated from Bible college. It's taken God many years to teach me to love people. Sometimes I wish that I didn't love people because it hurts to love people. When you love people, you care about the decisions they make. And when they make bad decisions, it hurts. Not because you're being hurt by their bad decision, but you're hurt because they are making bad decisions. It may not even be towards you, but they're making bad decisions and you hurt because you know the pain that they're going to go through and you love them enough to not want them to go through it. I've even told God, God, I really don't like that you made me love people because of how much pain that it has. But as a pastor, I need to love people and it's very true. As a Christian, we need to love people. But love hurts because you watch them make bad decisions or even dumb decisions. You, may, you watch them make decisions that are going to cause great pain in their life and you're going, no, don't do that. And you encourage them and they still make the bad decisions. And any parent knows what that, what that kind of love is like. If they love their kids and they watch their kids make bad decisions, and it's like, would you just quit making bad decisions? The sad thing is most people have to make the bad decisions. Most people cannot learn from others' mistakes. They have to go out and make the mistake themselves for it to really be something they learn from. The good news is God gives us plenty of opportunities not to have to do it that way. But it's just like any time you tell somebody the stove is hot, what's the first thing you're going to do if somebody tells you the stove is hot? You're going to get at least close to it, if not touch it. Uh, the paint over there is wet. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, you know, we have this natural tendency to learn the hard way. 
Now, the good news is God can work and teach us otherwise if we just will bend our heart. Adam and Eve did the same thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And yet we see them standing there looking at it. They probably never yeah. noticed it before until we heard it. Well, probably not. And, but, you know, they stood there looking at it. How many times do we look at evil going, I'm not going to do it, but boy, it sure looks interesting. Uh, doesn't seem like it's going to hurt. <laughs> doesn't seem like it's all that bad. And then we end up falling into it because we're not looking at it the way God looks at it, as evil. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we ask that you work in our hearts. Teach us to be more like you. Help us to let our flesh be crucified and let you work out of our, out of our lives and in, in a new and fresh way that you, your spirit will guide. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this that doesn't know, know you, we ask that you convict them of their sins. Let them know that they faced punishment for their sins. And ask, let them repent from their sins and ask you into their heart. And then contact a Christian friend or, or even us here at the church. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.